When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Contributing editor for McLean's Magazine, co-founder of the Resistance Noir podcast network, the pundit formerly known as Andre Domiz, <laughs> Q Anthony. Welcome back to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. Do you prefer Q or Anthony or both together? Uh, Andre is fine for the time being until uh, all of the other uh, documentation goes through at the end of the year. All right. We'll stick with Andre for today then. Welcome back. Thank you. Today, church burnings. They're still bad, right? I guess it depends on who you ask, but arson is definitely a problem. Maybe this is now uh, a controversial topic, church burnings. I guess we'll talk about that. Also, we will take a look at right-wing podcasting in Canada. Is it a thing? Maybe it's a thing. This episode is brought to everybody by Brian Roberts, Jesse Woodward, David Graham, Justin Gurr, Madeline Wilson-Shaw, Bram Grunier, Finley McEwen, and Matt. Hey there, I'm Matt from Moose Jaw, and like a lot of elder millennials, I am an office drone masquerading as a creative. I support Canada Land because I think that every time that I give Jesse Brown five clams a month, Ted Rogers spins in his grave just a little bit more. An investigation is underway in Surrey after a massive early morning fire destroyed a church. The destruction erupted following the discoveries of hundreds of unmarked graves at former residential school sites. And today, members of Indigenous communities called for the violence to end. Burning down churches is not in solidarity with us Indigenous people. As I said, we do not destroy people's places of worship. One of my reflections is I understand the anger that's out there against the federal government, against institutions like the Catholic Church. It is uh, real and it is fully understandable. So, Andre, more than a dozen churches at this point have been vandalized or damaged by fire since June Mm -hmm. across this country. Ontario, BC, Saskatchewan, Alberta, Nova Scotia. So the way that this is reported is that they've been either damaged or burned down, vandalized uh, by arson, which is kind of a vague way to word it. And I think that people are just imagining that there are 12 churches burned to the ground. I'm not trying to minimize anything here, but I think that there is some nuance in this, and it's worth talking about the different circumstances that have played out. In many cases, there are small Catholic churches on indigenous land. In other cases... It has been churches that are not Catholic churches. In some cases, there are churches that are not in use, that are either just uh, in disrepair. One was one that was sold privately to a family, not a functioning congregation. However, again, not to minimize anything, there have been functional congregations, 
churches where people come to pray, churches that feed the homeless, churches that provide refuge, churches in communities that have been burned to the ground. I want to talk about how this has played out in the media, mainstream and social media. Oh, brother. I don't think it's controversial to be not cool with this, to be, I, I feel like I'm against church burnings. <laughs> how do you feel? I'm, I don't know. I'm mostly agnostic. <laughs> and I don't, I don't mean that as a joke either. I look at it as in wake of the fact that thousands of, you know, remains of, of indigenous children who were buried in mass graves and unmarked graves were found on properties that uh, used to uh, serve as residential schools. It will be thousands. It's not thousands yet. Okay. Well, well hundreds and verging into the thousands. Even if there was like five, it would still be a tragedy. But it's once you get into that number, it becomes almost unfathomable, right? And the way that it was a national conversation just a couple of weeks ago and has mostly petered out into pleas for forgiveness and you know, needing to look more into our past and the, the usual pablum that you hear from people that want to perform apologetics, but then take no concrete action to make restitution or reconciliation. That part really struck me, just how quickly we returned to normal after these discoveries. So in the wake of that, I think for a lot of people, they've separated in their minds the discovery of over a thousand uh, remains of children who were kidnapped from indigenous communities and died in residential schools, they've separated that from the church burnings. So the church burnings are a completely separate occurrence where you've just attacked our places of worship. This is awful. It should be universally condemned. And where people, I think, their wires get a little bit crossed is when you hear Prime Minister Trudeau and other high-profile politicians say that it's understandable they're not thinking about understandable in the wake of this discovery. They're thinking about it's just bad that churches were burned, period, and which is why I'm agnostic about the entire thing. Because on the one hand, am I for arson? No, of course not. Am I willing to accept that a response that people might have to such a horrific discovery is to attack the symbols of the institution that caused those deaths in the first place? Yeah. In my mind, I'm just like, you know, it's property. It can be restored and people have every right to be angry. Am I for church burnings? No. But is this going to occupy much real estate in my mind? Also, no. I mean, that's good that we're at least find some common ground there. And I agree with you that what is happening and what needs to happen and, and should not be normalized and, and should not be waylaid or frustrated by this is that we need to deal with what is still being uncovered in these mass graves. Well, it seems that we're talking about the church burnings more than we are talking about the discovery of these remains. Not on this show. We're talking about the church burnings today, but that's that's that hasn't been true here. Sure. Well, I mean, in, in general, though, like in, in Canadian media. Let's flesh out what's actually going on in the media here. Um, first of all, whether it was intentional or not, Trudeau saying that it's understandable and not just uh, outright decrying this. He decried it, and then he said it's understandable. Is a bit of a flyer, and he's paying a political price for it. That made its way to Fox News, where Tucker Carlson had Ezra Levant on. Well, they're burning Catholic and Anglican churches in recent days. Leftist groups are. But Canada's leaders aren't condemning the burning of churches. No, they're endorsing the burning of churches. The head of the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, a monster called Harsha Walia, tweeted this, quote, burn it all down. Then a close confidant of the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, a man called Gerald Butts, called the arson, and we're quoting now, understandable. Ezra, thanks so much for doing the show. 
What is going on in Canada? It's hard to believe what's happening in Canada. What is this? Well, I'm reluctant to use the word crystal knocked. And back here on the post-media side of Canadian press, and also Robin back in the Globe and Mail, columnists are, are getting fixated that it's not okay for Trudeau to find this understandable or for Jerry Butts. I, 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 it's weird that it should be wrong to find it understandable. Like, we, I understand, as you do, Andre, the anger that led to these arsons, which I guess we're both against, the arsons. But I understand. Terry Glavin wrote, failed liberal brainiac Jerry Butts thinks that burning indigenous churches may be understandable. Wonder when he'll find it politically expedient to shrug off the burning of mosques and synagogues. Jesus Christ. Tucker Carlson and Ezra Levant think that by saying it's understandable, they're justifying it. Terry Glavin thinks that that is uh, the same as shrugging off the burning of mosques and churches. Wake me up when Christians in this country feel that they are going to have to leave the country out of fear of mass programs. Like, are Christians, are Catholics in any danger of being run out of town, of, of being uh, hunted down in the streets, of having their businesses and homes broken into, like, give me a fucking break. I want to get back to Terry Glavin here, and I want to hold him accountable because here he is uh, talking about how it shouldn't even be understandable and et cetera, et cetera. We shouldn't even try to understand. In 2009, here's Terry Glavin writing in the Taiyi. The story of secret residential school mass graves is an urban legend. For years, RCMP investigators have been chasing down these stories, and they have always come up with nothing. But they persist. I know, I know. He likened mass graves at residential schools to alligators in New York sewers, alien abductions, Masonic plots, crop circles, and 9-11 conspiracies. And I don't know that he has addressed those comments that he made in 2009 since this has been revealed to be anything but an urban legend. And his role in residential school denialism is, is, a, is a problem. I agree with you that it's hyperbole to liken this to Kristallnacht or to mosque shootings or burnings, but Christians in Canada can legitimately fear their place of worship being burned down because uh, over a dozen of them have been set ablaze. And to your point, Andre, that like you can understand the symbols of oppression and the symbols of residential schools being burned down, I can understand. I might even be okay with some of that. Like if there's some old church on indigenous land that nobody's using and it's just a symbol of this, it's like a crime scene and somebody burns it down and it's death to the symbol, I actually think that that might be something that's that I'm okay with. But there are other churches where people still worship, where indigenous people still worship. They're not symbols. They're actual churches. Right. That's not like low-grade deplorable. Okay, that's fucking awful. And I can understand why it's happening. And maybe some people who think themselves allies of indigenous people think that's a cool thing to do. But I don't want to get distracted by this, but it is fucking happening. One thing that we also do have to note is that until the perpetrators of the arsons are caught, you don't know why the churches were burnt down. So could they have been burnt down in retaliation? Could they have been burnt down as symbols? That's entirely possible. Could it be somebody who's taken this as, uh, you know, a reason for them to go out and burn down a church because they wanted to burn down a church? That's also possible. Like, you don't know what the motive is for some of these burnings. I guess. I don't think that church burnings were something that was happening all that frequently before. I think it's pretty reasonable to consider this uh, an aftermath of the, of the discoveries. I think what you have to acknowledge is that shrugging off of the burning of churches is grist for the mill. That's what turns this into a culture war thing that allows this to be like a false equivalency gets to be made. And I've been concerned, Andre, about the way this is playing out online. And uh, I want to talk to you about your comments in this discourse 
And I want to speak specifically about what happened with the BC Civil Liberties Association and its now former leader, Harsha Walia. So the BC Civil Liberties Association, first of all, is a fantastic organization. They are much more impactful than the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Harsha Walia is also a, a revered activist and an author. It is unfortunate how things played out because when Vice News reported two more Catholic churches have been torched in Canada, Harsha Walia retweeted that with a comment, burn it all down. And thereafter resigned. Well, there were some intervening events that happened between her tweeting, burn it all down, no and her shit. resignation. No shit there were intervening <laughs> events. No shit that if you run a civil liberties association and when churches get burned down, you say burn it all down. I mean, there is going to be pushback from Christians and churches in this country. And one might suggest, and I think that Harshawalia's resignation would confirm that if your job is to stand up for everybody's civil liberties and you have just said burn it all down in response to actual churches being burnt down, your position might not be tenable anymore, even if that's not exactly what you meant. I took it as referring to the system that produced these kinds of horrors in the first place and remains unaccountable for them. I saw the comment and I just continued scrolling. I was like, oh, all right, all right. There's always going to be a contention of people in this country that whenever something horrific happens, that turns out to be part of our country's past, right? So when there were um, people tearing down statues of Edgerton Ryerson, John A. McDonald, defacing statues of the queen, et cetera. That seemed to be where people were just on the lookout for, okay, so who's actually agreeing with this and what can we do to get them in trouble? And I think that that's like the reflexive response is to deflect away from the historic crimes that have just been reported and that we're all talking about and then pivot it to this culture war bullshit where you look for somebody who said something that's gone a little bit too far beyond the pale and then punish them for it. That's, that's what I found interesting about all this. I hear you like trying to get past the culture war bullshit, but I see you playing into it. And I, I, I want to actually talk about what happened. Oh, here. God, here we go. All right. So you and many others made a point, which is a salient point, that burn it all down is an idiomatic expression. It is figurative. It is used in social justice circles to talk about let's burn down colonialism. Let's burn down the systems figuratively. It is a metaphor for destroying the systems of white supremacy. It is not about literally burning down churches. And that's not what Harsha meant. Right. I get that. Some people know that and get that. But the problem with that is that actual churches are being burnt down. And her specific comment, burn it all down, was in a retweet of a news report about two more Catholic churches being burnt down. So Ian Young, who was recently on the show of the South China Morning Post, he said, I think the folk who are surprised at Harsha Walia's departure and the impact of the burn it all down tweet may have lost a little perspective on exactly what she said and its context. And the fact that racists and misanthropes also latched on, Tucker Carlson, others jumped on this, it doesn't change that, which is a pretty mild, I think, gesture towards understanding what played out here. And you said, man, shut up and fuck off to Ian Young. And then you said that he's a stock white Canadian and a cracker which was unfortunate. Well, I, I didn't look at his profile picture before I said that. I just, uh, first of all, I hadn't, I wasn't familiar with dude's work. And I thought it was just like another white person that was, you know, sort of like tap dancing on the embers of Harsh's career with the BC Civil Liberties Association. But from my perspective, it's like, 
everybody got what they wanted. She got in trouble. She resigned. Just fucking move on. What's the point of continuing to talk about it? What, what it was was basically to scold people that were still defending her and saying, well, if you're still defending her or this kind of language, you shouldn't. And here's why. And even though there were some heinous racists that latched onto this and incited harassment campaigns and uh, were, were saying some really awful and nasty things about her. Yeah, okay, that's that's all incidental. But we do have to keep in a perspective the thing that she said she ought to have been punished for, to which I say, well, she was already punished. So what the fuck are we still talking about? You know what I mean? I just find it really interesting that in the wake of this, Canada and its, its, uh, its legacy with, with indigenous peoples, Nobody gets held to account for any of it. So the Catholic Church hasn't been held to account for it. Government administrators haven't been held to account for it. There are ministers of indigenous affairs or Indian affairs, as it used to be called, in Northern Affairs, that are still around, that can be held accountable for it. You know, David Crombie is still around. He's not being held accountable for any of this. He's not being dragged before any panels or being made to answer. But the one person who went a, a bit too far in describing her own indignation at this who also happens to be a brown woman, is somebody who's punished and is made to be a social pariah. Nobody is ever held to account except for the person that said something a little bit too spicy for white Canadians to handle. And that's all I was talking about. Ian Young's not white. Yes, I know. He just, I took him to be a white person who was saying that shit. And I, I apologized for it. I said, all right, I misethnicized you. No, but you didn't apologize. You said, I don't care. When he said, <laughs> I'm Chinese and an immigrant, you, you called him a cracker and a stock white. You... I misidentified him. What? I, like, I don't really care if you, I don't can, care what background, you... I don't care what backgrounds you come from. You got what you fucking wanted. Just move on. How can you not, if you call someone a cracker, then you do care. Yeah. Then you do care. I mean, right? I, I, I care to I care to the extent that what you said was was heinous and it doesn't need to be talked about anymore. I care to the extent that reifying this whole idea it's heinous? That, it was yeah, heinous? It is, it is heinous. Reifying this whole idea that, that a person of color who says something that goes too far beyond the pale for the average white Canadian or the average Christian to hear in response to let's keep things in perspective. This is in response to over a thousand bodies of kidnapped children being found at sites of former residential schools. And Harsha Wally was expressing her own indignation and outrage at that by using that idiomatic term, burn it all down, which... Can you say that that was inappropriate? Yes. Can you say that that was possibly like anti-Christian? I mean, you could probably push that far and say that. But what was it in response to in the first place? Can we keep that in perspective? So the we fact that she she ends up being the only person punished for this in the wake of all that, it's like, all right, like, who fucking cares? Like, find something else to talk Wait about. Wait a second. Yeah. There, there's a yeah. series of, 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 of leaps of logic and assumptions being made here. And, like, look, you double down and then, you know, Sherry Wong, who's an activist uh, for Hong Kong independence, oh, she came to Ian's defense. She accused yeah. you of anti-Asian racism. And she said that you do not get to decide that someone is or isn't white or racialized, especially when you're not from that ethnic cultural community, the Asian community. And she called you an asshole. You went on to own that and say, maybe I am an asshole. Uh, I guess I'm not going to apologize for that. And you also, for some reason, got into, I find the pro-Hong Kong crowd obnoxious, too loose with the facts, and prone to anti-blackness. So uh, things spun out, I guess. Look, you are somebody who I, I, I have always cared to hear what you have to say, and I was happy to mm. publish you. And when I see like the discourse get like this, I want to talk to you when it gets okay. like this. Like I, I want to like figure out what the fuck is going on. Yeah. So there's a series of assumptions in, in that. Is it possible that... Somebody like Ian Young, I don't know what his larger opinions are, uh, but I know what, what, what is a reasonable opinion. I know what my opinion is, that 
I share your concern about what is a necessary reconciliation in this country and a reckoning getting waylaid by culture war bullshit. So when people are so blind to the obvious interests of Christian people to not have their fucking churches burned down, that becomes the issue to Tucker Carlson and not the dead children we're discovering. That isn't it possible that people like Ian Young are like, look, you can't get so into your idiomatic expressions that you are blind to the obvious interests of Christians who might feel the exact same way you do about a reckoning in the church and a reckoning in society in general, but are concerned about their places of worship being burned down. Jesse, you're talking to a Christian that has a place of worship. Okay. (laughs) Like, I'm an interested party here as well. And somebody who I'm sure is aware of the history of church burnings in racialized contexts. So like, can we, can we like agree that nobody should be burning churches, especially like active congregations, and then not assume that anybody who expresses that is actually an agent for ignoring mass graves and actually start like go back to working together towards uh, like, I think a pretty reasonable shared goal of dealing with the atrocities in this country's history. On the one hand, like, do I want churches that my family goes to to be burnt down? No, obviously not. But if the churches that my family go to had a history of kidnapping indigenous children and letting like plagues rip through the student population and then burying them in unmarked graves, many of the times not even notifying their families, would I have any empathy for the people that retaliated that way? Yeah, absolutely. Personally, because it's just so hard for me to understand in the broader context of what the story entailed, which is, you know, over a thousand uh, dead children that didn't need to die and uh, people retaliating against that. And then the way that folks on the, as you say, social justice left responded to it. I think that the larger perspective that ought to be had here is stop punishing people for their forms of speech. If somebody expresses outrage or solidarity or whatever the fuck, who cares? Does it alter or change your life? Are you being impacted materially by any of this? No, you're not. You're just feeding into the same garbage culture war that everybody else is and saying, well, you shouldn't be able to express yourself in this, that, or the third way because it's important for people who go to church to feel safe going to church. Is that important? Yes. Do I have any interest in policing somebody else's language when they express outrage that way? No. And I don't think Ian should either. Well, he was explaining something and offering, I, I, I don't even think he was taking a side. Here's another assumption. If you stand with Harsha Walia, Harsha Walia was not fired. Harsha Walia resigned. Resigned, yeah. Is it not possible that she, as a intelligent, independent thinker who cares deeply about the viability and credibility of the BC Civil Liberties Association, made the informed decision that her regrettable mistake made her position untenable and that for the best interests of this organization, she chose to resign and that standing with her would be supporting that decision and not making an assumption that she was somehow forced to do so. I don't know that she said anything to the contrary. Mm-hmm. And now this 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 battle that everyone's against the BC Civil Liberties Association in support of Harsha, perhaps she resigned to protect that organization that she had put so much effort into because she recognized that it sucks that this one tweet would have this repercussion, but it is also, to use the term that's come up a lot in this conversation, it's also understandable. I mean, 
I took no position on the BC Civil Liberties Association whatsoever. If she resigns from these from the organization out of a desire to protect the organization, then that's a valid choice, and I support that choice. So what concerned me was the people that continued to dogpile after the result that they were looking for had been accomplished. So what is there left to talk about? Well, what there is is trying to get the people who were still offering messages of support and possibly being against the BCCLA and uh, possibly still talking about solidarity with Arshawalia, is, is trying to get them in line. It's basically sheepdogging them into a certain form of opinion saying, well, you all have lost the plot if you're still talking about this in this way. She was wrong, and so are you. And I really have a hard time with people trying to police language that way, because what is it besides just falling in line with the status quo. It doesn't challenge anything. It's not taking any risks. You're asserting that he's policing language. And I'm offering you, I think, a pretty reasonable other way of reading his or my take on this, which is that when voices become so dismissible that they seem reasonably to be encouraging the burning of churches, that Mm -hmm. too allows the status quo to reassert itself because it allows assholes like Tucker Carlson to dismiss this whole thing as a bunch of lunatics. If she had said that it was understandable, just like Jerry Butt said that it was understandable, he would have ran the same segment using the same language anyway. The idea that anybody on the center left or the left should have to structure their language in such a way that it prevents the right wing outrage machine from spooling up. It's a red herring because they're going to say what they're going to say anyway. And I'm never going to structure my language around what it is that somebody might say about me or my position because I know what the fuck I said. Look, all I know is why it like was cringy for me to read her tweet and your exchange where you say, you're calling Ian Young a cracker and then saying, I don't, uh, I, I, well, no, actually, I'm Asian. I don't care. And then you get called an asshole. And you're like, an asshole. Maybe I am an asshole. I am what I am. The, the, yeah. the reason why I cringe at that is not because I'm trying to find a reason to ignore what is happening at residential schools and what we're discovering, but because it's a huge fucking distraction and it's culture war bullshit. And because I admire you intellectually and would rather see you taking part in an actual conversation. It's, I'm not trying to police your language. I'm I'm just like, like, what the hell? Like, like, can somebody call up Andre and like, you know, there may be broad societal support for an actual meaningful reconciliation. This might be a once in a lifetime opportunity and it's turning into more Fox News bullshit. Okay, but my exchange with one guy is not going to derail any of that from happening. All right. All right. Look, things can get fucked up on Twitter. Do you feel good about the Twitter exchange? (laughs) Anything? I feel no way about it whatsoever. It's water under the bridge to me. I mean, uh, you know, a a friend of mine uh, stepped in and said, like, you know, we really shouldn't have to get into this. Like, social media brings out the worst in us and you're you're better than this. I said, all right. You know what? To me, it's water under the bridge. I can I'm happy to forget any of this ever happened. Now, am I going to, like, go back on anything that I said? No. As a person, as a human being, like, to see the dog paw continue just pissed me off to the point where I was just like, all right, can we just, like, shut up and talk about something else? That's pretty much where I'm at on that. Yeah, but if, if the idea was to, to shut it down and move on to something else that didn't work out, I I, I, I guess <laughs> I want to suggest to you, and I'm not going to police your language. You can think whatever you want. Yeah. But I would suggest to you that if the outcome of the way that this played out is that, like, suddenly there's a with us or against us thing where, like, pro-Hong Kong independence activists are, are now kind of on the outside of, of what you're driving towards. And, you know, your fellow Christians who are concerned about church burnings are somehow in the way of some kind of progress. Then maybe this took a wrong turn. And uh, that's all I got to say about it. Yeah. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they 
don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Andre, what do you have to duly note today? I wanted to note that uh, the uh, the Cuban uh, protests are have pretty much fizzled out. And I found it really interesting that for many people that consider themselves to be on the left, there was a, a small like upsurge of support for Cuba, for running the blockade, etc. And then when the opportunity came to speak out against Cuban authoritarianism, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and talking about how oppressive the regime is and all of the stuff that you would normally hear from like, you know, U.S. news and the, the right wing, etc. When there were these uh, these protests that that broke out on the island. Everybody was talking about how, you know, we need to liberate Cuba from the oppressive regime. And yes, the blockades are terrible, but yada, yada, yada. And uh, the the protests have pretty much fizzled out. And not only did they dissipate, but they were vastly outnumbered by the amount of Cubans that were marching in support of uh, Cuba's system and the quote unquote oppressive regime and the one party state, etc. And some of those are still ongoing. So I'm interested to see how people follow this up. I'm also interested to see how people follow up with regards to the assassination of President Jovenel Moise in Haiti and uh, have conversations about Haiti being a basket case and completely leaving out Canada's responsibility in uh, kidnapping its former president, John Bashan Aristide, and essentially plunging the country into well over a decade of chaos, uh, just completely ignoring our hands and our responsibility in destabilizing that country. So I'm interested to see how uh, both uh, Cuba and Haiti play out going forward, but I was incredibly disappointed in the way that both recovered in the news lately. The coverage of, of the of the Cuba protests, like the fuckery with the pictures, like at a certain point, <laughs> I, it wouldn't have surprised me if there was just like a picture of like three kittens or something. Like it just seemed like they were, <laughs> they were just like kind of running whatever, whatever, whatever they, you know, there didn't really matter. There were people that were marching in support. There were people that were marching in support of the revolutionary government that were reported as being uh, people that were marching against them. So, I mean, I mean, you know, it was 
it was actually like some of the wildest and most inaccurate journalism that I've seen, on, especially where it comes to foreign policy in a, in a very long time. But, you know, after a while, it, it just you don't really expect any better. Duly noted. I want to duly note the illusion of progress in press freedom. And I don't know what I want to talk about here. Listeners may remember that we did some reporting on what was going on in Ferry Creek in British Columbia, where the RCMP were like not allowing journalists to come to see what they were doing when they were doing police actions and, and the old growth uh, logging. And uh, they had like this exclusion zone and, and there's all kinds of bullshit from the cops not allowing the press to cover. Like we don't know what happened there and, and uh, mm. in full because of uh, what the cops were doing. And the Canadian Canadian Association of Journalists, along with like a number of very small and poorly resourced news organizations, which put their collective efforts towards challenging the RCMP in court. Well, earlier this week, the CAJ won this court challenge. Justice Thompson agreed with the press coalition, stating, I am not satisfied that these exclusion zones and associated access checkpoints have been justified by the RCMP as reasonably necessary in order to give the police the space they need. And the hope with, with like getting the CAJ involved is like, let's set a precedent. Of course, that precedent had already been set that the cops can't make exclusion zones the press have to be allowed to come cover things. So I was skeptical when the CAJ was declaring victory that this wonderful new precedent may have been set for journalists. And one day later, as we record this today on Wednesday, we hear from the Encampment Support Network here in Toronto that uh, the cops are planning to remove all media from inside the fence where there are homeless people at parks and the cops are fencing them in. And uh, they're not letting this be covered by the cops. They're creating an exclusion zone. And one cop actually said, imagine if someone posing as media came in here and stabbed a cop. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So this is what's good. Like the cops don't give a fuck what the jurisprudence or what the, what the case history is. They will continue to push on journalists, especially as these journalists aren't coming in a CBC news van anymore. The frontline journalists are increasingly from small independent networks and the cops can't tell them apart from protesters. And they have some weird fantasy of protesters disguising themselves <laughs> as, as media to stab <laughs> the police. I applaud CAJ and those associated news organizations for fighting this fight, but it's almost like the old ways of doing things, of setting a precedent, and that, that establishes the rules of engagement between police and journalists. That's just broken. It's not working anymore. Duly noted. Andre, what has always excited me about podcasting as a medium is that it's like this totally blank slate. You can do anything. You do not have to be constrained by the pre-existing media categories or buckets of verticals of sports, whether you launched a black-owned podcast network for political takes that will not be found on the mainstream media. I did whatever this is over here. Elsewhere, across podcasting, there's been incredible experimentation. We've got hit shows uh, hosted by inmates, conversations about sex and race, shows for kids about brushing your teeth properly. It's a time of great experimentation. But in Canada, I guess the strategy for podcasting has been to wait and see what works in the United States and then do a low-budget Canadian version of that. Yeah, that's that's pretty much the long and short of it. I mean, podcasting is not easy. It's not just like getting in front of a microphone and shooting the breeze. It's also learning to edit audio. It's learning to produce, i.e. like making sure that you have guests and topics and everything else lined up and getting all your research and everything done. So you're having to become essentially a jack of all trades as an indie podcaster. 
it's not easy work. And I think the reason for the lack of experimentation within Canadian podcasting is because we have such a smaller media ecosystem to begin with that you kind of have to wait and see what works before you take the risk and go do all of that work on your own. All of it in Canada is just moving the decimal point one place over. Like it's just <laughs> that, that, you know, it's just it's just a tenth of the audience, kind of less than that when you when you're because the language distinction limits the market even more. This has only flourished because in the States, an ecosystem for advertising has built around this. And all these little niche audiences have been defined as markets right. that if you, if you can actually like reach that market with a different kind of show for this particular market, then suddenly there's ad dollars there. And that just hasn't been the case in Canada where really professional podcasting as opposed to the the grassroots stuff has been defined by established legacy media brands jumping on a bandwagon. And, you know, I'm not looking to disparage anybody um, in my industry who's just like working, you know, and finding work in podcasting and there's good work being done. But in terms of like the format of these shows, what we've seen is like after the daily established that daily news podcasts are a thing. And hey, if you've got a news organization that's already doing original reporting, why not make an audio version of one story per day? And then we've seen Rogers, the Toronto Star, the CBC, the Globe and Mail, Post Media, all follow suit with like their own kind of take on the daily podcast. Post Media is twice a week. But it always struck me as so strange because first of all, you're gambling that you can take those listeners away from the daily because people aren't going to listen to two of those shows every single day. And then, you know, Canada's not the U.S. We don't have a story every day, that, that especially because Trump uh, was what made the daily tick yeah. off the way that it did. So anyhow, from a, from a pure publisher's perspective, I've always, I don't know, raised my eyebrow. Like you're all fighting over the exact same possible listener. You're all trying to steal listeners away from the daily, and then you're all fighting over whoever can be stolen away from the daily. Meanwhile, in the States, there's this massively successful conservative podcasting market, and there's a huge listenership for talk and chat, not necessarily news, punditry, and haven't really seen, I mean, we've seen Canadians become like big alt-right figures in global podcasting and U.S. podcasting, but none of these media brands have gone after that right-wing listener in Canada until just a few months ago, it seems. Well, I mean, there's quite a market available for, I mean, not just right-wing podcasting, like right-wing everything in the United States. Like there's, you know, indie uh, television networks like uh, OAN. The difference is, is that uh, they're heavily funded by uh, corporations, by uh, think tanks. Like there's not just like a a large and healthy ecosystem for right-wing thought in America, but there's also a funding apparatus behind it. You know, there there are people uh, like uh, Sheldon Adelson, God rest his soul in hell. People like uh, the uh, the Koch brothers uh, that will throw tens of millions of dollars at this ecosystem. But in Canada, I don't know that there's any such analog. Uh, So it's, it's people that are essentially like fighting for a listenership that may or may not reward them with uh, with patronage. So in Canada, we had the analog to uh, Fox News back when right wing television was was just taking off. Uh, well, you know, Fox News and Sinclair Broadcasting Network, et cetera, in the states. Um, they tried Sun TV up here, and that was a colossal failure. Mm-hmm. And that's because they just they we don't have the same type of you know multi billionaire funding to penetrate entertainment and news networks. The reason why I'm I'm bringing all of this up now is that post media, after kind of just like having this kind of ragged podcast game uh, seems to be trying. In April, they launched a show called Full Comment, which is how the National Post has branded its opinion section uh, online for many years. 
it's a competent rebranding. Uh, the artwork has like a square jaw of like a white guy talking, and then it's like a ripped page, and it says full comment. Like this is unvarnished raw talk, and it's hosted by Anthony Fury. We've documented, I think, Islamophobic writing by Anthony Fury in the Sun. And if you look at what has been highlighted on full comment with Anthony Fury since it's launched uh, in April. It is like, you know, Lindsay Shepard and uh, Against the Radicals and, and Rex Murphy. In fact, let's, let's listen to a little bit of full comment. Rex and I are going to focus our conversation today on the dismantling of and disrespect for Canada and its institutions under Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. How's that for a trigger warning? A classic in the memory of those who have a memory for politics is that Canada is the first post-national state it has no core values what in the name of a subsidiary god is that supposed to mean and you know a, a little quibble that i've always been meaning to make about canada 150 the headline musician up there on the stage with justin trudeau and sophie the headline musician for the performance bono from youtube oh, and i'm Lord, like excuse Lord, me Lord. you don't go to bono you go to Bono when you want to put a rubber band on your wrist and pretend that you're saving the African poor. I always remember this day. I was still living up in Ottawa when it happened, when Trudeau banished, banished liberal senators from the liberal caucus. To me, that was such a, I don't know what to call it, like a Maoist move. <laughs> oh my God. So there you go. Like, I, I think it's very like clearly an attempt to see again if they can do in podcast form what Sun News Network Television failed to do in TV form, which is like throw red meat at Canadian conservatives, of which there are many, and see if the anti-Trudeau crowd can like get on board. I, from a publishing standpoint, I understand this completely. It makes more business sense to me than going after the same center-left news listener as the Daily. There's a lot of listeners to tap into there. The cultural war that Rex Murphy seems to be like waging long after his army has departed is it's kind of funny to me. Like he's he's kind of like the lone Don Quixote left tilting at the windmill, and uh, Anthony Fury playing the part of Sancho Panza. I don't know what kind of market exists for this stuff. I, I mean, I don't really know how many like right-wing people are tuning into podcasts versus AM radio. What I do know, though, is that this was just bad content. I listened to the entire segment, and from beginning to end, I was like, what new facts or information, what have they illuminated exactly? And there, there's nothing said between the two of them that you wouldn't have already expected to be said. Like, it's just like rehashing over... Whatever happened to be in the news or whatever grievances that they had left over, whatever hatred that they have for Justin Trudeau and just agreeing with each other. Like there was nothing interesting or challenging about this whatsoever. So I don't know. I mean, the best of luck to them. If this is emblematic of what kind of programming is going to come out of full comments, I mean, hats off to them. But I don't really know who else needs to hear this. Andre, have you listened to much conservative radio in the States? Have you listened to like Rush Limbaugh back when oh he was alive? Oh my God, yeah. I used to live in South Florida. Uh, mm -hmm. So you, you couldn't turn on a radio without hearing Michael Savage and uh, Rush Limbaugh. Uh, Sean Hannity was like just starting to develop a radio career uh, at that time. There was people like G. Gordon Liddy. Like, yeah, there was a there was a pretty like healthy ecosystem of uh, right wing talk show hosts. You know, when I go to the States and rent a car uh, and drive around, I would listen to Stern and Limbaugh and I would just marvel at how good they were as broadcasters and how they basically just like you feel like you're hanging out. And like within 30 minutes, a completely different 
ideological system starts to just get like repeated and normalized and everyone's agreeing with each other yeah. and they have something that they're enraged about. If, I'm talking more about Rush Limbaugh here than Stern. You know, there's this assumption that you're on their side or that you're just like one of the dudes hanging out and they create their own complete self-fulfilling um, ideological bubble and it continues to confer confirm itself. The difference is that Rush Limbaugh was actually funny. Like, yeah, that's that's one thing. A lot of these, uh, one thing, a lot of like the uh, you know the the new right lacks is that they're they're not funny people. I mean, look, Anthony Fury is no Rush Limbaugh, <laughs> um, but he's not that bad. His uh, background in theater, actually, Rex Murphy is actually a good broadcaster with a pretty unique voice. And when I heard this full comment episode, there's a couple things that jumped out at me. One was that whatever it is. It's better than attempts to do this in the past. It certainly comes closer at mimicking uh, American-style conservative talk than the TV version. And it's, of course, cheaper to do that on a podcast than it is on television. And I kind of thought like, huh, they seem to have their act together and I could see this actually working. And the other thing that I noticed about it is there used to be a lot more concern within post media about keeping the National Post brand a bit classier and creating a firewall between the Toronto Sun and the kind of outright bigotry that you would read in the Toronto Sun from the sort of like suave urban conservative, uh, Andrew Coyne style conservative that, that I think the National Post aspired to. And I see now that they've just completely collapsed that firewall. I was just going to say, yeah, they, they've pretty much collapsed it too. Like I don't really, if I, if I um, you know, go to the National Post site, and I, I do read the National Post on probably like a two to three day a week basis. Aside from syntactical structure, I don't really find a lot of differences between the National Post and, and the, uh, the Sun Papers anymore. It's done. And, you know, I think that the only difference is National Post had beautiful design, especially when it launched. And uh, that I think is meant to signify that it is the classier version. It's not that tabloid stuff. And that's kind of all that's left in a lot of ways. But this seems to be like the last bit of the wall crumbling. There's no news in this. They're, they're just chewing over uh, rage points. What took them so long? That dream of the classy urban conservative, there is no market there. Yeah, I wouldn't say the classy urban conservative doesn't exist. It's just that they've all moved out of Toronto and gone to Calgary. So, you know, if you go out west, like you, you will find those types. Uh, they've just uh, gotten far the hell away from us. Wherever they are, either they're listening to American and reading American stuff. There's just not enough of them to like build a media brand. All of which is to say, I think this could work. Yeah. All right. That's Shortcuts for this week. Andre, thank you for joining me. Yeah. Thank you for having me. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. You can email me about it at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything that you send. Andre, Q Anthony, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. My at is Andre Demise. You can also email me, andre at andredemise.com. And you will be able to find my columns in McLean's Magazine beginning in September. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do, if you want to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us by hitting the link in our show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. Join.